0: This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health Insurance with AIA Vitality, cover that protects and rewards. To find out more, call 133 AIA or visit AIAhealth.com.au today.
1: To buy when there's blood in the streets, uh. lift up, check under the carpet. Many times you become master of the market.
0: market, market. Well, Alex Saunders, welcome to uh, to Masters of the Market. Incredibly excited to uh, to have you on. Thanks for, for giving up some of your time.
1: No worries, Chris. I'm looking forward to diving into it and answering all your questions today.
0: So the, I thought we'd start with the, the journey from pharmacist to crypto investor and founder of Australia's leading digital platform for, uh, for crypto information. Talk us through that journey and, and how it started.
1: Yeah, so investing was always a bit of a passion for mine and I lost a lot of money around the GFC. So my parents gave me some shares for my 21st birthday, just showing my age a little bit there. And um, the market crashed in half, as you know and your audience would be familiar with. And I sort of said to them, how does this work? Do we pay someone who was their money manager to lose half our money? And I thought, you know what, I want to learn how this all works and I could do a better job than that, I reckon. So I went down that rabbit hole while I was studying pharmacy, Uh, It became a little bit of a sort of gold and silver bug and watch all those documentaries about how the world of banks, debt and money works. Uh, And that led me to find Bitcoin in 2012, uh, just as I was graduating. And, And that is just a whole nother rabbit hole already. So... By that stage, I was trading options and derivatives and shares, uh, you know, really interested in gold and silver still. But Bitcoin was just one of those things I read about and I just knew it would catch on. It was just a matter of time because it was a digital money in, in a digital world and we can get into why that is later. But um, yeah, down that rabbit hole for many years, then came across the other coins like Ethereum, which I think we're going to touch on. And then the 2017 uh Bubble happened in the crypto world and everyone all of a sudden wanted to know what what it was. So I started making uh, Content uh, that just grew in popularity. We started some paid services as well So I was able to quit my job at the pharmacy Uh, I had a few mates that had some spare time and all of a sudden they were helping because we were getting hundreds of emails a day So before you knew it, it was a it was a business Uh, and now as you say we have 16 staff um, I'm the only one that's down in Tassie, the rest are scattered over Australia and around the world. And yeah, we're the leading source for education and we really cover everything in the macro world from property to the stocks, gold and silver, but particularly a focus on crypto education.
0: And how long were you investing on the side whilst working as a pharmacist? And how many years did you sort of take to get the courage to take the plunge and say, no, I want to pivot here and change careers and, and be fully immersed in, in this investment landscape?
1: So the investing was like far more passive. You know, I wasn't a day trader or anything back then. Uh, the most active I probably was, was, you know, selling some options, um, being a little bit creative there. But I, I think you learn that you really don't have an edge and you're just another fish in a huge pond. And if anything, you've got less information than all these other guys or the insider trading that happens. So it's really hard to get in front in that world, I found, um, unless everything's going up <laughs> like at the moment. And I'm sure we'll get into that as well. But uh in crypto, it was very different. It was such a small space, um, so niche. You could tell that it wasn't mainstream and any sort of coverage or growth. It just had this hundred or thousand x potential, uh, and that's why I really loved that. And and getting into it more, it just it wasn't covered by any analysts. There were so many rebuttals and people thinking it was a scam or you know just a, a joke. And all those sort of things, the more I read about it, I just knew that they were all wrong and it was legitimate and it was just a matter of time. So, look, uh, when I quit my job, I asked my wife and she was like, you know, I was a manager at this pharmacy by this stage and been there for five or six years. She wasn't really comfortable with me quitting that because we had our wedding coming up, wanted to start a family. And, you know, you're saying, oh, I'm going to quit to make videos on YouTube about magic (laughs) internet money. Uh, but I sort of took the plunge as in life, I think you've got to take those sort of risks and it all pays off in the end if you're really passionate about something. And it was, it was kind of a testing time because crypto did go through that bubble and pop and we were building a business during that, that winter, that crypto winter, when all the businesses were getting flushed out. Uh, and that was certainly probably a good thing to really strengthen our business and, and what we wanted to do. And now we're coming out the other side of that and we're starting to you know, reap a lot of those rewards. If
0: you, if you look through where we find ourselves today in, in markets and, and probably even as a society with the amount of uh, rioting and, and inequality that's going on around the world, a lot of it can be traced back to the, the GFC and, and how central banks, in particular the, the central bank in America, the Federal Reserve, respond to that crisis. You know, the decision to, to implement QE1, and not just QE1 but then qe you know, one, two, three, and, and and so it goes. You know, it's played such a huge role in, in where we find ourselves today. Was that the thing, Is that the problem that you saw crypto potentially able to solve? And was that one of the, the main reasons that got you so strongly interested in this space?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of funny because it was the gold and silver crowd that were really strong on teaching those messages and gold has fallen out of favor a little bit after that big run up and, and unwinding and and now they sort of butt heads a little bit but for a lot of reasons i think the gold arguments and the bitcoin arguments there's a lot of overlap there and a lot of differences which we'll get into as well but for me back then it was all about yes these huge debts and unfunded liabilities people were saying that these are all temporary that the QE and the money printing interest rates or negative across Europe. Oh, this is all temporary. Everything is going to normalize. And that's what the sort of bond market was pricing in. That's what all the big money around the world believed. And the Peter Schiff's of the world were saying, you know, that's never going to happen. Maybe they can bump interest rates a little bit. We had Jerome Powell come in and he tried to do that. And exactly like all these guys had been saying, they were forced to drop it back to zero. And, and the money printing is just continuing. And I think people are now waking up to it when the US have spent you know, 3 trillion this year. It doesn't really matter what the number is, whether it's 2 trillion or an 8 trillion deficit at the end of the, this year. These are astronomical numbers that mathematically can never be paid off. And not only that, they can never raise interest rates because every country is in the same boat with this huge debt to GDP or household debt in Australia. So you can't you know, put interest rates back up on people with mortgages or credit card debt, whatever it is. So the environment that we're in is 0% and money printing for the foreseeable future. And now they're talking about inflation and actually trying to pursue inflation. So we've got this situation where we've got negative real interest rates. And all of a sudden, all those arguments about gold being a pet rock and having, you know, doesn't pay a dividend. Well, when everything else is now, so then these negative real rates, that becomes very attractive. And then you've got these other arguments for Bitcoin, like the banking system. And people say, "Well, the Aussie banks are never going to crash, or in America they'll just bail them out." That's kind of true, but in there's a lot of other countries around the world. There's hundred countries, and you see Lebanon, uh, you know, Greece, Zimbabwe. You know, the list is just growing where the banking system is failing either financially or politically, and these people have no way to save money or, or park wealth, or you know confiscate they can't send money to another country there's all these sort of reasons where this digital money where you can do whatever you want with it and it's scarce it's just creating more utility and more value that we haven't really had before
0: i think the the what a lot of people do is they go back to the last crisis the gfc and because it's a heuristic and it's easy to do and then compare and extrapolate what's going to happen from this most recent covid crisis from the, the monetary stimulus that's pumped in and I think the big learnings for most people from the GFC was that increasing money supply doesn't necessarily lead to inflation, particularly if you measure inflation as CPI. You know, anyone who lives in Australia is seeing lots of inflation in asset prices, um, you know, housing prices, uh, education, healthcare, lots of things. But in terms of CPI, how it's measured, we haven't found inflation. Do you see this time being different? And do you see, you know, differences to velocity of money or some of the, the changes being implemented banking system over in the US or potentially the fiscal stimulus that's coming. Do you think more broad inflation will come post this crisis?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And that was another thing that markets are initially pricing in when all this money printing happened, they thought it was going to lead to big inflation. And it didn't, because a few things happened. So most of that money ended up sitting as reserves at, at sort of commercial banks or wherever it was. And the people that got their hands on that, you know, they're really lucky. It's the cancel on effect where they get to spend the money first on whatever they want. And basically they spent that money on speculating in assets. And because it's only the sort of 1% and those financial markets that are going up, you don't really get asset price inflation in, in, in the real world. And the money doesn't even really filter down into the real economy if it's sitting in those other markets or as reserves. Banks are really uh, hesitant to lend. Like in Australia, they'd way rather lend to a mortgage and get that 4 5% than risk you or I starting a business, you know, why would they do that? So a lot of money has been placed in these, I guess, ways that we're going to find out is is inefficient and unproductive, and that's going to hurt us, I think, and global, global economies. Uh, but why this time is different is there's a lot more talk about how do we get it directly to the people. We've already seen these big stimulus checks where a number of people are getting paid more than they were pre-COVID. But we've also got the talk about central bank digital currencies or, um, you know, government issued like in China, they want to issue their own cryptocurrency. And what this enables you to do is they're going to say, well, this is called Fed coin. Uh, You've got to download the Fed app and it bypasses the commercial banking system or the government can just go straight to individuals and give them money. And that's very different to sitting reserves in banks that don't get lent out or don't get given to real people. So what we've already started to see in America is sharp uh, food inflation, even measured with CPI. As you say, you know, you can argue that the shadow stats and these other figures that cost of living has been going up way more than what they say. But um, now we've got these ways and means and technologies and also like the political will. I think Trump wants to spend a trillion dollars or two before the election to try and give himself the best chance. And, and all these governments around the world really want to do that. And now they have a kind of a, a way to to do that so it's more fiscal this time around it's more direct individuals direct into the economy and the last thing that we're starting to see now is you know farms go broke in america so we're sort of more money chasing fewer goods and that i think is a recipe to get inflation
0: and i'm not sure if you've heard that the Hugh henry conversations with richard werner which was you know I, i thought it was brilliant but that idea that when central banks Go direct their ability to pick out which entrepreneurs uh um, good ones to lend money to because they can put that to work and be effective in that money in the community and in effectively employing people and growing businesses they're not going to have that skill that, that, that a local bank manager would be able to have um and just the inefficiency that can uh, that can create is one of that is that one of the, the potential costs of having central banks go direct and cutting out the the banking
1: system. Absolutely. And it's probably one of the problems that we've seen in, I guess, just society in general, whether it's, you know, the big corporations just absorbing all these different companies and whatever it takes out that, I guess, that local community feel and spirit and, you know, buying local, supporting local, but lending local is really important for those regional banks, which we don't have anymore. And they're just not willing to take those risks that we spoke about. Now, in the crypto world, which we'll get into later, there's a lot of this now lending and borrowing and funding from people that are sort of like the experts in that field or that, that knowledge, and they see an idea or a concept and they want to fund that. That's very different to having to go through the traditional VC uh, or, or banking method.
0: Yeah. And so what, what problem, ostensibly, your, I mean, your audience will, will know this very well, some of my audience won't. What problem, ostensibly, is Bitcoin trying to solve?
1: So Bitcoin solves a few different problems. And it's kind of funny when the white paper came out initially, it was out of the GFC and within the first Bitcoin block or the database, it had this message about the bank bailouts. And so that was very much what it was launched. Just, you know, sort of saying the people need their own form of money. People are getting fleeced here with this silent stealth tax of inflation or just having their bank accounts haircut in Cyprus with those bail-ins, you know, Everything is working against them. And in some countries, you can't even get a bank account. Or there's no banks. It's impossible to save if they're hyperinflating your your money. Uh, It's impossible to send money to your family in another country in a lot of places. Or you can pay Western Union 20 or 30% of that $100 a month that you earn. So Bitcoin is now sort of finding its place in utility and it is different things to different people in different countries. That's something that's really important for people to understand when they sit at home in Australia or America and say, why do I need Bitcoin or digital money? You know, I can use PayPass or I've got a bank account. We we don't really need Bitcoin here in some regards. But in other countries, you've now got access to a, a currency that is scarce and we call it the hardest money because even gold, you know, has an inflation rate or they mine two or 3% more gold. They might find a big deposit next year. You know, in decades out, they might be asteroid mining gold or whatever it is. So that's one reason that it's now the hardest money with governments around the world printing trillions and trillions of dollars of fiat currency. They're trying to debase and win these currency wars, but they're trying to pay down these debts and unfunded liabilities. And there's only two ways they can really meet those promises. It's either default which isn't going to be popular and would send ripples through the bond market and, and trust and confidence in different um, you know trades, or it's inflate this away you know silently and just hope that people don't notice that you're printing 10% a year trying to pay all these pensioners or whatever it is. And so now you say, well, hold on, I've got this other currency, which is actually getting harder. So Bitcoin has its halving every four years, which just means that the inflation rate Uh, drops down the new issuance of coins. And that recently just went down to 2%. So we're already below the sort of target band that central banks talk about. In 2024, we'll go to 1%. Now you have a a currency which you know can't be debased and printed more of. So mathematically, it is more scarce and becoming um, rarer compared to fiat currencies around the world. Then you've got the other arguments about it being a payment system where if I can't send money out of China because of capital controls, Well, that's why Bitcoin is so popular there because you just download an app and press a button and you can send it to anyone in the world. Uh, Or or if you're a blogger or our business, for example, we've got customers all around the world. Some of our subscriptions are, you know, say $50 Aussie dollars a month. Someone in Russia can't really pay $50 Aussie dollars a month because the international transfer fee and the spreads are going to be more than that. Whereas with with Bitcoin and crypto, they can. So that's the two big methods. Uh, the, The third one, I guess, is confidence in the banking system in terms of not what they're going to print but is it going to collapse are you living in a country that doesn't have a banking system you can now start a business or an online business and you are your own bank because you can't get a bank account uh, or the banking system is fragile in the country you're in and you don't trust it to have all your assets in custody and being your own bank is another one and the fourth and final one which rarely ever gets talked about it's just the fact that Bitcoin is the, the strongest, most secure computer network in the world. And it uses a lot of energy to achieve that, but it's now being recognized. So companies like Microsoft have come along and said, we're going to build our new digital identity system on Bitcoin. And, and that's a huge statement when companies like Microsoft have got as many computer servers and the infrastructure and technology that they want, but they've chosen to build their new product on Bitcoin. And we're going to see more of that, that, Uh, piggybacking off of Bitcoin's network and the, uh, I guess, security that it offers. Paul
0: Tudor Jones wrote a a recent paper with an ex-central banker that was um, widely read in which he encouraged people to invest uh, a portion of their portfolio in Bitcoin. What do you think that did for uh, social proof of Bitcoin, if you like, in the, the investment community, having someone as as well regarded as as Paul Tudor Jones endorsing Bitcoin as as an investment? I
1: I think we kind of always knew that it was going to happen. And it was probably one of the first assets in history where Wall Street and VC investors, tech investors, were late to the party. So Mm. there was no way for them to on-ramp. They're not used to having to take a photo of themselves with their driver's license to sign up for a crypto exchange that's all a little bit of an unknown to them. And so in 2017 or the years before that, it was really, you know, you were a bit of a rogue if you took those steps and transferred money to buy these things off, off the internet. And so when we had this retail boom, you had these mom and dad investors that were way ahead of any of these professional investors. And it turned into a bit of a bubble. There wasn't a lot of the derivative markets or stabilization. So it, it kind of went higher than fair market would dictate. And then, These markets are so speculative and emotion driven that it probably went lower than I would have thought was fair value when it went from 20K back down to 3K. And during that crypto winter, it was just really clear that like Fidelity, all these different companies were building out the infrastructure. And once they can profit off that, and they don't really care if it goes up or down, they just want to make their fees. That is kind of what's been happening behind the scenes. And we haven't quite got a Bitcoin ETF yet, which is going to be the, the big final piece of the puzzle, I guess, for those sort of investors. But we've got a lot of insurance, custody, trusted brand names, you know, fidelities of the world. They're all getting into the crypto space and we have Bitcoin futures. Um, it, it's just really matured. And and now someone like Paul Tudor Jones can come out confidently and say that, you know, I'm in Bitcoin. It's sort of proven itself. It's been through that boom and bust. Just like the dot-com bubble, you know, good companies emerged out the other side. That's kind of where we are in crypto. And nobody really wants to be first apart from a few, uh, you know, rogues like Tim Draper, uh, which your audience might know. But now we've got more legitimate people coming out. I think we're going to have more businesses. Well, just last week, we had a little uh, NASDAQ listed company saying that I think they have 250 million of cash. And don't really want to sit it in us dollars they're going to put it in gold and bitcoin and other things the next step from this is countries or central banks a lot of them are now buying gold and increasing their gold reserves with the currency wars but if you're a little central bank and you're in one of these sort of southeast asian nations they've all got their own little currencies that have got market caps that are around the same as bitcoin you know, why on earth wouldn't you start to print money to try and buy up gold or Bitcoin? I think we're going to sort of see a, a rush to commodities or real assets, sort of like what we see, you know, China and these other, this big geopolitical chess games that happen. Everyone's trying to buy out resources off each other. But now the question becomes, well, sort of, are you going to sell that to another country with money you're printing out of thin air? How does that actually have value? And is that fair? But it's the same with Bitcoin and crypto. I think once Nobody wants to be first, but once the word gets out that someone is doing it, nobody wants to be last. And we're going to see that in the investing world with a lot of assets fully priced. Where do you get your alpha these days when everything's trading at record PEs? It's one of the reasons I kind of think gold and silver and and the the miners have been so popular lately and crypto and digital assets, it's an emerging asset class, technology is sort of the flavour of the month at the moment just everything about the narrative you can build around it makes me more bullish than I was back in the day when it was just about you know debts and unfunded liabilities now you've got everything I've just spoken about negative interest rates you know it's crazy to think that this stuff is happening and that's why I think bitcoin's going to keep going higher
0: and your new service nuggets news was uh, was lauded at the time for for advising people to sell during that that bitcoin Mania. What was it during that time that that led you to believe it? I mean, it clearly looked like a bubble to everyone, but what gave you the confidence to make the call that, no, this this has got a little bit out of control and it's time to lock in some profits.
1: Uh, I think being in the crypto world really accelerates your understanding and, and hardens you, matures you. And I'd been through a couple of bubbles already and I'd made all the same mistakes that everyone was making at the time. So, you know, I'm not a genius, uh, but I'd made those mistakes before. And when you see it's that point of just complete euphoria where we're getting hundreds or thousands of people trying to join our group and ask how to buy Bitcoin, that was the sort of mania. And you look at the chart and it was parabolic. Um, my, my goal for Bitcoin, I bought Bitcoin around $30. My goal was always, oh, I would be good to get to $3,000 in 10 years. And here we were just, you know, 3000 5000 10000 20000 So it was kind of like, well, we are now in a bubble. It's just a matter of where this ends. And it was, um, so my 30th birthday was the day that Bitcoin topped, believe it or not. And it was that week a few days before I posted in our group for our premium members, you know, have a look around guys. Everyone is bragging. Everyone thinks they're a genius. Um, You know, these are the times when markets top and everyone, it doesn't feel like it. It feels great at the time. Everyone's getting rich. But, uh, yeah, I said, these are the sort of times when, you know, we've made life-changing amounts of money. Make sure you sell some. And it wasn't really a popular post or whatever, and not everyone did, but uh, that ended up being a, a very good call. Can you explain to the listeners just
0: the process of Bitcoin mining, what the, the companies and individuals that do it, do it? And maybe a, a perspective on just how much energy that uh, that requires to mine Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when... Um, When I send you some Bitcoins, it has to go across the internet, across the computer network. And normally, if I send you money from a bank, for example, to your bank, those servers at the banks, you know, they talk to each other and they have a database and they process those transactions. Well, in the Bitcoin world, there is no company or headquarters. Every computer out there that runs Bitcoin and supports the network, you know, helps process these transactions and store the database and the history of who owns what. So when I say, I'm going to send Chris a Bitcoin, it gets broadcast out there to the network and then it has to be what we call mined. And all that means is sort of like confirmed. And the way that that is done is all these computers are sort of competing to, because whoever confirms that transaction first is rewarded with some Bitcoins. That's the, the mining reward blocks that you've sort of heard about. So, To start off with, you could do this on a laptop. So you or I could just be running the Bitcoin software. And uh, the way it works is you're trying to solve a complex puzzle. So you need a sort of powerful computer to do that. And as more people got clued into this, oh, wow, you can earn Bitcoins just by running this computer program. Well, people bought better computers. And then they bought better graphics cards to be more powerful. Then guys started making... Computers that were specific, they only did one thing, and that was the Bitcoin algorithm. So it's called an ASIC and application specific integrated circuit. So these things were coming out of China, and this was like the bleeding edge of technology. Like these were better chips than the chip makers made. So this became such a highly competitive space because of how profitable it was to get all these Bitcoins. So, yeah, all around the world, you've got these now supercomputers which take up huge amounts of energy. And they're all competing to try and solve this uh, puzzle and whoever solves it first they get to uh, add that next block or chunk of information to the database and then that is sort of shared around the world all the different computers say yep this is the new database it's the latest copy and they all agree on it and that's when um, my transaction is now confirmed and it says well you know take one bitcoin out of alex's wallet plus one into chris's wallet now, because that's become so competitive, yes, it uses enormous amounts of electricity. I think it's equivalent to probably uh, would be number twenty if Bitcoin was a country. Now, some people say that is that's terrible with the whole green movement. Hmm. The truth is, Bitcoin's one of the most renewable and fastest-growing renewable industries. Um, so you don't just do this in Australia and pay thirty cents a kilowatt hour for your power. You do it in China where you set up a building next to a hydro dam and have basically zero cost power or in Greenland, you know, geothermal, uh, we've got wind farms, we've got solar Bitcoin farms in Australia, but you do it where there's either spare capacity Uh, in America, some of the, you know, the gas shale plays that are just flaring off this gas and it's going to waste. They're going to start to set up some Bitcoin mines there. So yeah, you do it where you've either got spare power or cheap free renewable power. You don't set up a coal mine to mine Bitcoin.
0: And that, that, that power usage, in effect, has to keep going forever for Bitcoin to work. Is that
1: right? Uh, well, well, not really. It's, a, it's an equilibrium thing. So the Bitcoin um, network, it knows how many people are trying to solve that puzzle. So it gets more difficult if there's lots of computers. But the actual, like, the, the software is the same from when it was just you and me running Bitcoin on a laptop. If it goes back to that, it'll adjust back to that being the difficulty. Whereas if 100 times more mine is set up, the algorithm will automatically make itself 100 times harder. And what it's trying to do is just balance it so that there's roughly a new block mined every 10 minutes. That's all the network's trying to do.
0: So it doesn't mean that the more Bitcoin's used to transact and for people to invest, that that energy curve keeps growing exponentially?
1: No, but in theory, like if you think about it from a game theoretical point of view, if Bitcoin keeps going up in value, there's always gonna be more people that wanna try and get those Bitcoins for, for mining and then processing the transactions.
0: That was one part of it I found interesting when I was reading up. But the other thing that I think investors that haven't grown up with crypto or, or find hard to get their head around is that idea that only governments can create money is a, a law in basically every country. Do you see it there being a risk that one day the government will turn around and maybe in America or China or here or wherever and say, right, this is, this is now illegal? Um,
1: yeah, it's certainly a risk that I was worried about back in the day. It's almost got to the point now where it's so big and there's so many powerful hands and companies and it's on Wall Street People would be lobbying, I think, and marching in the street. Very similar to if you said, oh, you can't buy gold and silver, or we're going to confiscate yeah. that these days. I just don't think you'd get away with it in the world and the age of social media we live in. And it's almost an admission of defeat. You know, it, Bitcoin is just, it's a politically neutral thing. It, it's there, it's its software, it's on the internet. You can't really ever ban it. Like People are always going to be able to download an app or a computer program no matter what you do so it's kind of just there and if governments say you can't use it which they have done in other countries in the past it's a little bit like a black market it actually creates a premium and bitcoin will trade for a higher price in those countries because of how hard it is to get so it would create an interesting situation but i just think we've come so far that it's almost impossible for them to do that and even if they do do it there's still going to be so many ways around it. It's a bit like saying, you know, you can't, whatever it is, download a movie or do this, that, or the other. These days with technology, there's always ways around it. And I guess
0: considering the role technology is going to place in in global competition between countries, for a government to do that, they're potentially putting themselves at risk because other countries will make technological advancements potentially that they they won't be able to participate in
1: yeah absolutely so it opens up i think that's the point that governments are going to get to you know banks and whoever it's bad for and it's going to eat their lunch their market share they're going to lobby against this and they're going to hate it And that's why they're all launching their own coins now trying to cash in on this space but it opens up the world of e-commerce like look at my business or any of the crypto businesses in australia you know these are growing they're paying tax it's ultimately good for the economy it's just opening up Uh, e-commerce and it's changing money. It's taking money out of hands that are inefficient. And I don't believe that I should have to pay $30 to Western Union to send someone money in another country. And that $30 is now going into the economy somewhere. So it's going out of the hands of banks and payment providers, which are just sort of rent seekers. Let's be honest. These days, we live in a digital world. We should be able to send money digitally when we have a high definition video chat digitally for free, why are we still paying banks and all these payment providers so much in fees when they don't do anything, don't add any any productive value to the economy?
0: And are they the ones you think have most to lose from the crypto revolution, the banks?
1: Yeah, so I'm not the person that's saying that banks are gonna burn and not exist. They're still gonna have a lot of functions like lending and mortgages to some degree, but I guess crypto is coming for that as well. But Yeah, anything that is just hasn't, banking hasn't had an upgrade for like 30 years or more. Mm. What, yeah, I just don't understand why we're paying people fees every month. Why do you pay two, $3 at an ATM to get out your own money? And it hurts the lower socioeconomic classes more when they go to get $20 out of an ATM and pay a two or $3 fee, you know, 10, 15%. All these things are just going to go away um, as money becomes digital, just like information became digital with the internet.
0: You are seeing some banks start to come around to it a little bit here in Australia. They're, they're opening up some of their systems to crypto. Do you think it makes sense for them to just be a first mover advantage and accept certain bits of their business are going to be cannibalized, but some other opportunities are going to open up if they are one of the first movers to embrace it?
1: I think, like a lot of things, if, if banks used Bitcoin, they would probably be able to save a heap of money and, and lay off a heap of staff. So, technology does replace a lot of the jobs that we do and some banks are sort of cluing into that and the the neo banks the second tier banks and the payment providers they're the ones that are really going after this because they know that they can make good businesses out of this before the big banks who are sort of slow to move so that is kind of one way that i see it going but also an admission of defeat so someone like jamie diamond has been calling bitcoin a scam every year and saying it's going to fail Then last year, he kind of said, oh, you know, blockchain, not Bitcoin, that's okay. Then they said, oh, we're launching JP Morgan coin. And then this year, it's gone full circle. And they're now servicing Coinbase and Kraken, the biggest exchanges in the world. So it's almost like this admission of defeat where the old, you know, Gandhi saying, first they laugh at you and then, you know, they end up joining you. And that's kind of where we're at now, where Bitcoin is going to become another sort of global currency, store of value. They could make money from storing and custodying that, um, still charging fees for people that want to buy it. For those people that don't take the time to learn how to do it themselves, there's always going to be those sort of people. So, yeah, there's ways for them to cash in on it, I, I guess, but um, it is going to take a lot of market share from what they do.
0: What does Jack and Miller say? Strong views, loosely held, they're yeah. uh, <laughs> coming around. Yeah. So what about, um, what about Ethereum? You're incredibly passionate about that. From the outside looking at it feels like there's a bit of a desire for, for crypto investors to pick one or the other. Um, what do you like about Ethereum and how does it contrast with Bitcoin?
1: So I'd probably start by saying that um, 99.9% of cryptocurrencies are, are crap or going to zero or scams. So like I wanna be really clear, but there's probably 10,000 or more coins now. So originally up until say 2016, a lot of them were just clones or copycats of Bitcoin. They said, you know, we're, we're twice as fast instead of every 10 minutes processing transactions, we're doing it every minute, or, or we're more private than Bitcoin. You know, sort of little, little features, little tinkers that don't really do anything. And people would get excited about them because of Bitcoin's price and whatever, and it all just sort of followed Bitcoin. Then in 2015, um, Vitalik, who invented Ethereum, He was a passionate bitcoiner and he said i want to start to be able to do more so bitcoin is a pretty basic in terms of its technology it's just a ledger that keeps a tab of how many coins chris has got how many alex has got and when we send them from a to b that's really all it does now you can build some slightly more complex things on a second layer like above bitcoin so you might have heard of the lightning network but again you're always kind of limited to what you can do because of how bitcoin is made to put it simply so what vitalik wanted to build was another technology where you could do more it was just more flexible and you could build um, apps on it sort of like the app store and what he wanted to do was take this sort of permissionless uh, open network that bitcoin was for money and and do that for the internet and information so you see you know lately uh, twitter takes down accounts youtube takes down videos you know, that's all my life's work, for example. We've obviously got things backed up, but a lot of influencers have found out the hard way when their YouTube channel gets taken down. Oh, you know, YouTube has all my data and all that value that should be mine. And that's where we see Facebook, Google, Amazon, you know, all these big companies are so valuable and a lot of them are free to use and people never stop to think, well, why is that? And it's because of all the value that comes from the data and the on-selling, the marketing and advertising. You are the sort of customer. So he wanted to rebuild a new internet where you can have, and we already do have these, you know, a decentralized YouTube. So you upload a video, it's there forever. No one can, can take that down. So censorship resistance for everything we do um, around the world. And that was his vision. Um, one of the things that's really taken off lately is decentralized finance Uh, which we'll get into, but there's uh, all sorts of other things that are very interesting, like gaming. The world of gaming is just so huge and we don't really see it in Australia. But yeah, he's basically rebuilt this new system. They call it Web3. It's like a new internet where anyone can build anything on top of it. You're cutting out the middleman, trying to give people value and privacy and ownership of their data and, and just let people build whatever they want. And that has become very, very powerful. And it is, I'd say it's more of a technology play than a money financial play like Bitcoin is. And so does that openness
0: in effect make Ethereum perhaps less secure, but the potential for what it could do in the future is, is, uh, has much more potential?
1: Um, so when I say open, I just mean Bitcoin's also open. All I mean by open is that anyone can download a Bitcoin wallet and start using Bitcoin this instant. And it's the same with Ethereum.
0: But it's just much more complex to build apps that will work with Bitcoin than is for Ethereum, isn't it? Is there a difference about how they've been programmed?
1: Yeah, so Ethereum is far more complex in terms of what you can do. And that does create a little bit more risk because people are writing these programs or smart contracts, as we call them, and they're finding bugs in them, like any early stage software, I guess. So that's where you might've heard about things like hacks happening and this, that, or the other. But the actual... Bitcoin blockchain or the Ethereum blockchain has never been hacked. It's kind of these companies or websites or businesses that are built on top of them that get in the headlines and people think, oh, you know, I'm not going to invest in this because it can get hacked or whatnot. You're the owner of your own money or your own data. And if you have that, that key or that password and you leave it on your phone or you put in your email or whatever, you know, this is the stuff that hackers love because people are lazy and they don't store it safely offline so I guess that's the thing that I'd highlight to people about being the owner of all your information and data comes with a bit of responsibility.
0: And so one thing that comes up a lot is the security levels of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, do you see there being a major difference in, in which one's more secure? And What are some of the things you, you put in place to, to keep your crypto secure?
1: Uh, so, there's two things to speak about here. The first one is the Bitcoin network and how it's secured. And that's through all those supercomputers using a lot of energy. So, it's very difficult to attack that because someone needs a lot more energy and they need a lot more of these supercomputer chips, which are basically impossible to build as well. So, that makes Bitcoin very secure and unhackable. That's why Microsoft is building on top of it. Ethereum and some of these other projects are saying, well, can we make something that's a little bit you know, less power intensive we don't want a hundred different cryptos that are all using all this power so bitcoin uses what we call proof of work because those computers are doing a lot of work uh, to prove that they you know secured the network ethereum is using what we call proof of stake and all that means is that you're putting your coins at stake so you have to lock up a certain amount of ethereum or you can get together with your mates if you want to do like a syndicate you lock your coins up and you say we are going to secure and process transactions And if you don't do that correctly, the penalty, the network, you know, slashes your coin. So everyone is going to act um, in the right way. And the computer just randomly chooses Alex's computer or Chris's computer, and they get to process the transactions. They get a little bit of a reward in Ethereum, uh, and they add that, that block to the Ethereum database, the Ethereum blockchain. So that's something that they're making a big major transition to in the next few months to move away from proof of work, which they also use at the moment. Uh, to proof of stake. So, that's, people are very excited about that. Bitcoiners say it's no good. Ethereum community say that they love it. There's so much tribalism in this space. It's uh, crazy, but I try and uh, remain unbiased. And do you think
0: with te- technological advances that are going to come in five years, 10 years, 20 years, do you think the tech behind Bitcoin is going to stand the test of time? Or do you think it's likely there will come a point where it gets usurped by superior technology?
1: Yeah, so a good one we often get asked about is the quantum computing side of things. And if there was a really good quantum computer right now, it could attack Bitcoin in terms of trying to solve all those puzzles and just being way better than all the other computers we have. And that is a risk. If quantum computers existed right now, they could attack anything on the internet, uh, any, you know, the the White House, the banking system. So I think Bitcoin is the least of their worries if you've got a quantum computer that's starting to attack things uh, but bitcoin can upgrade itself at any time so if it became known that there was a quantum computer all the computers around the world that run bitcoin they say hey guys we need to upgrade our uh, software to something that's a little bit harder and quantum proof and everyone in the network is going to probably agree to that because the opposite is you know going to hurt bitcoin and if everyone gets what we call consensus and agrees to do something that's the only time that you can make changes on, on Bitcoin so uh, you know, another example is people say we well, can always print more bitcoins well no one all the computers are never going to agree to do that to do devalue themselves and print more bitcoin so the game theory of it is that improvements are only ever made when everyone agrees to something because it is good for the network uh, The when other everyone part agrees
0: of- or when a majority agrees
1: uh, so you have to have <laughs> Again, this became really game theoretical. In theory, you need more than 51%, but if it was a 49-51 thing, then people aren't probably going to risk that. $200 billion worth of Bitcoin and all their hardware and mining infrastructure they've put around the world. We had a situation a couple of years ago where 90% of people had agreed to do this upgrade, but even that was still a bit risky. They didn't want to risk a 10% sort of split off in another faction So they didn't end up doing it. So it really is something where we're probably not gonna see any changes unless it's a 99, 100% uh, agreement. Other thing I'll just mention quickly, I didn't get to before was um, your question about personal security. So personal security is different to the whole security of the network where people aren't used to this because when they buy shares, it's held in their shares account in the Commonwealth Bank computers or Robin Hood or whatever it is. Uh, In crypto, you need a, a hardware wallet. Ideally, and that is just like a little USB. Uh, I've got one behind me here somewhere. But um, that takes your password or your key, your digital key, offline. So it can't be hacked. It's not on your computer, on your phone or your email anywhere. That's the most secure way to store your crypto. Now, a lot of people just buy it on the exchange and leave it there. And the exchange has all the keys to everyone's crypto. And that's where people get in trouble because hackers try and target their username and passwords and try and get into their accounts. Some people are just lazy and just set up wallets on their phone and they don't even understand this technology that anyone that gets their private key or their their backup words, um, you know, as soon as you've got that, it's just like leaving the keys to your safe on top of your safe at home and leaving your front door open. You just, you wouldn't do that. And have there
0: been attacks on accounts like, you know, Coinbase and Kraken, the, the more sophisticated accounts? Have even they been vulnerable to some attacks?
1: Oh, absolutely. Over the years, there's been some massive, massive attacks and exchanges have really got better at the way they store things in what we call offline cold storage where 90% of their coins are you know, in, in hardware wallets in safes. So it's impossible to actually uh, hack them. Uh, Australian exchanges have got a pretty good track record. So there's one, BTC Markets, they had a little uh, hack a year or two ago. But other than that, like the Australian exchanges have you know, we've got a really good track record. And, and most of the big exchanges like Coinbase and Kraken, again, they have never been hacked. It's kind of, you know, the fringy ones that don't have the best security and developers. And that's why I say to people, you know, just never muck around with these. You hear about a website or you hear about an exchange or something, it's just people get in so much trouble in this space when they go chasing these little funky things.
0: And, to my, and you can't really get insurance for it, can you? I mean, you can, but it's just ridiculously expensive. Is that some of the infrastructure that you think will change as time goes on?
1: Absolutely. It's a huge opportunity and it's got a lot better in the past 12 months. So you can insure your crypto for, I think even less than 1% a year now in Australia. Mm. Um, So custody and insurance has come a long way.
0: And just before we finish up, what are some of the things maybe around the Defi network or, or new changes that you're really excited about that you think could take crypto forward?
1: So one thing that everyone's buzzing about at the moment is this idea of decentralized finance. So this is all built on top of Ethereum. Um, Some of the things that you can already do, for example, is the options derivative market has exploded. So I can sell options, you know, covered coal strategy against my Ethereum and my Bitcoin now, and I can do that all from my hardware wallet. There's no signing up to an exchange or a broker. There's no fees on these trades or spreads. You're just trading with someone else around the world that's doing the same thing. And these li- liquidity has got to a point now where it's pretty decent to do all this stuff. So options, futures, insurance, decentralized insurance. So if you're playing around with these protocols, that you're if you're worried that there might be a bug and you've got a million dollars in this, this lending sort of app is another thing with these decentralized banks and the, the interest rate in crypto generally sits at around 8%. So if I can lend someone money, 8% is a lot better than what I'm getting in a bank. Uh, but you're worried about that being hacked, leaving a million dollars in a protocol online. So you can now ensure that for around 1% a year. So there's lots of these things that are just all, we call it DeFi Legos because they just all sort of integrate and click together. And it's very exciting what's happening. We've now got synthetic versions of Apple stock, um, synthetic versions of indexes. Um, when when oil was going negative, these these guys, these developers are very quick to give people what they want. So they create a synthetic oil contract on Ethereum. And I just see it's just such a huge space, uh, portfolio management, automated strategies, um, things like getting your wages streamed to you by the minute rather than getting a paycheck every two weeks. The other big sector is gaming, which I'm just so excited about. And, and the reason that is, it's, it's hard to understand if you're not a gamer, but these gamers love uh, personalizing their, their character or their, their personality, their mission, whatever they're doing. And these guys, these kids are spending thousands of dollars buying the latest clothes for their character or the best sword for a game um, or another item that they need to finish this mission with their friends. And when in the world of crypto and blockchains, that it now becomes yours and you become the owner of it. And it's not like the game can say, wow, these kids are loving these swords. Let's make another thousand of them and sell them for a thousand dollars each to make a million bucks. And then they're not rare anymore. And the kids go, oh, that's not that great. So the people are in control of the network. The same as what we spoke about with Bitcoin. The the users of this game are never going to decide to make another thousand swords because that makes them no longer rare. And now we have this situation where, because everything is these Lego pieces that snap together on Ethereum, you can create what we call a multiverse. So you might have one game that's completely different from another, but that character can now go play in that other game with their clothes with their friends and that that gang they've built up that reputation and take all these things to these different worlds. It's called a multiverse. And that is just absolutely getting the developers excited. So they're leaving all these big gaming companies to go work for these little independents or, or do their own things. Because again, they don't have to bow the knee to these in investors or report back to the board every quarter about their earnings. They can now fund the best ideas directly. I can give them some Ethereum to to chase their idea. And this is just a very, very exciting world that's now starting to even overlap with the business world. So there's a a project I'm very bullish about called Decentraland, and that's a virtual reality space where you and I can go in there and have a business meeting in virtual reality, either over the screen or actually with our headset, our goggles on. And you'll you'll walk into these virtual banks to get a virtual loan on Ethereum we've now got decentralized credit scores and reputation so we can start to build up trust. If you're borrowing money, you can delegate, you can say, I know Chris, I'm happy to collateralize his loan and he can borrow some Ethereum to build his project. So this sort of stuff is just absolutely taking off. You wouldn't believe the growth and the numbers and what is happening. Uh, and that's why I'm so excited about this space.
0: You think 5G technology is going to give that a real kick along a lot of that virtual reality stuff as well, wouldn't
1: you? Absolutely. So we In Australia, our our broadband isn't always the best. Once we go into these virtual worlds, if we want lifelike quality graphics and real time interaction, yeah, you need a really strong network like 5G or or fiber to the premises.
0: Fascinating stuff. But could go on for a lot longer, mate. But yeah, as I said before, really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Where can people find out more about uh, your services and and what you guys do if they want to learn more?
1: Yeah, so nuggetsnews.com.au. We have a a group and some premium content as well, but we have a heap of free stuff on Nuggets News YouTube, and I'm very active on on Twitter, Alex Saunders AU. Beauty, thanks, mate, appreciate it. Thanks, Chris.
0: This episode of Masters of the Market is proudly brought to you by AIA Health Insurance with AIA Vitality, cover that protects and rewards. To find out more, call 133-AIA or visit aiahealth.com.au today. If you're enjoying Masters of the Market, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.